Please uh, take with uh, take your copy of the scriptures and turn to the Old Testament book of Ezekiel chapter 24. Uh, we come now to hear God's word uh, read and preached, which I want to remind you this morning is an act of worship, and therefore we engage in it in faith, that faith without which no one can please the Lord. So we do turn to this passage with an eager and expectant spirit, seeking and waiting upon the Lord who speaks to us in his word. We come to our text in Ezekiel chapter 24, which brings us exactly at the halfway mark of the book of Ezekiel. For 23 chapters now, the prophet Ezekiel has been proclaiming the exact same message using different images and parables, different different pronouncements. He has been warning the exiled people of God in Babylon for about four and a half years now concerning the coming judgment upon Jerusalem. And Ezekiel chapter 24 uh, freshly brings us a new date at the beginning of the chapter. Uh, Two years and five months have passed since the last dated block of material in chapters 20 through 23. And chapter 24 uh, finally brings the repeated message of the previous 23 chapters to something of a point of fulfillment. Uh, Verse 1 in our chapter tells us that it's January 15th, 588 B.C., And on this very date, the Babylonian invasion uh, begins. The city of Jerusalem comes under siege, proving that the previous 23 chapters were no empty threat, that the promised judgment is at hand, that God always keeps his word. God is bringing judgment against his rebellious, hardened, covenant-breaking people through the pagan nation of Babylon as his instrument, and our chapter, as it brings us to that event, uh, essentially contains two parts. It contains a parable and it contains a sign, a parable that uses the imagery of the pot, a cooking pot that is corroded and impure with meat inside it, and the whole cauldron is seen as being burned up as a picture of Jerusalem under siege, uh, which siege would last about two years before its final fall and destruction, and that's going to be the first 14 chapters of uh, 14 verses of our chapter. And then there is this sad personal experience of Ezekiel that we are told in the second half of the chapter. Ezekiel, whose beloved wife suddenly dies, but the Lord tells Ezekiel not to mourn or weep or shed tears over her death as a sign, a sign that will communicate a message to the house of Israel. So those are two parts in our chapter a parable of the pot, and a sign of Ezekiel over the death of his wife. And with that in mind, let's hear God's word. And after the reading of it, we'll pause again to seek God's blessing in prayer. Let's hear God's word, beginning in verse 1. In the ninth year, in the tenth month, on the tenth day of the month, that is dated according to reign of Zedekiah, and that is January 588 B.C., the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, write down the name of this day, this very day. The king of Babylon has laid siege to Jerusalem this very day and utter a parable to the rebellious house house and say to them, thus says the Lord God, set on the pot, set on it, pour in water also, put in it, the pieces of meat, all the good pieces, the thigh and the shoulder, fill it with choice bones, 
Take the choicest one of the flock, pile the logs under it, boil it well, seethe also its bones in it. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Woe to the bloody city, to the pot whose corrosion is in it, and whose corrosion has not gone out of it. Take out of it piece after piece without making any choice. For the blood she has shed is in her midst. She put it on the bare rock. She did not pour it out on the ground to cover it with dust. To rouse my wrath, to take vengeance, I have set on the bare rock the blood she has shed, that it may not be covered. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Woe to the bloody city! I also will make the pile great. Heap on the logs, kindle the fire, boil the meat well, mix in the spices, and let the bones be burned up. Then set it empty upon the coals, that it may become hot, and its copper may burn, that its uncleanness may be melted in it, its corrosion consumed. She has wearied herself with toil, its abundant corrosion does not go out of it, into the fire with its corrosion. On account of your unclean lewdness, because I would have cleansed you and you are not cleansed from your uncleanness, you shall not be cleansed anymore till I have satisfied my fury upon you. I am the Lord. I have spoken. It shall come to pass. I will do it. I will not go back. I will not spare. I will not relent. According to your ways and your deeds, you will be judged, declares the Lord. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, behold, I am about to take the delight of your eyes away from you at a stroke. Yet you shall not mourn or weep, nor shall your tears run down. Sigh, but not aloud. Make no mourning for the dead. Bind on your turban. Put your shoes on your feet. Do not cover your lips, nor eat the bread of men. So I spoke to the people in the morning, and at evening my wife died. And on the next morning I did as I was commanded. And the people said to me, Will you not tell us what these things mean for us that you are acting thus? Then I said to them, The word of the Lord came to me, Say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will profane my sanctuary, the pride of your power, the delight of your eyes, and the yearning of your soul, and your sons and your daughters whom you left behind shall fall by the sword. And you shall do as I have done. You shall not cover your lips, nor eat the bread of men. Your turbans shall be on your heads and your shoes on your feet. You shall not mourn or weep, but you shall rot away in your iniquities and groan to one another. Thus shall Ezekiel to, to be to you a sign. According to all that he has done, you shall do. When this comes, then you will know that I am the Lord God. As for you, son of man, surely on the day when I take from them their stronghold, their joy and glory, the delight of their eyes and their soul's desire and also their sons and daughters, on that day, a fugitive will come to you to report to you the news. On that day, your mouth will be opened to the fugitive, and you shall speak and be no longer mute. So you will be assigned to them, and they will know that I am the Lord. Well, thus far, this reading in God's holy word, let's uh, look to our God together and seek his help and blessing upon our study. Let's pray together. 
Lord, our gracious God and heavenly Father, we pause to give you thanks and praise for your word, for it is true and pure. Although the grass withers and the flowers face, and we are like the grass, your word abides forever. And by your life-giving word, you have brought us out of the dust to heavenly glory with Christ, and you have caused us to be born again. And we thank you for its life-giving power that is at work always when the Spirit of God uh, brings the word to bear upon our lives. And we pray even this morning, uh, the word of God would be opened in power and in demonstration of the Spirit. And we pray that you would cause light and immortality to freshly shine in our souls through the gospel. And pray that we would glory in the Lord Jesus uh, we see in the scriptures. So minister to us the riches of Christ. And we ask these things as your people in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'm sure that all of you have had a few kitchen mishaps in your experience. Perhaps you forget about the saucepan uh, sitting on the stove, and after cooking something, you just uh, left the stove on, or you're boiling some water, and you walked upstairs or went into the bathroom, and you completely forgot about it. And the next thing you know, it's uh, all charred. Uh, smell and the smoke rising in that kitchen room. You have to open the window, the pan. You discover it's overheated, empty, and now warped and ruined. Uh, and if something was in it, it's all burned up. It's uh, dark, and the black burnt stuff on the surface of the scorched pan doesn't really come off, no matter how long you soak it in water or how hard you scrub it. Well, that familiar experience is the image given here as the subject of this parable that God tells Ezekiel to announce to the people in the first 14 verses of our chapter. And it is exactly on the same date, also we discover in 2 Kings chapter 25 and Jeremiah chapter 52, it's exactly on the exact same date we're given elsewhere in the scriptures where we read in the ninth year of King Zedekiah's reign, 10th month, 10th day of the month, when King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came with all his armies against Jerusalem and laid siege to it and built siege works all around it so that the city was besieged until the 11th year. And the date supplied here in Ezekiel 24 is the exact same date of that historical event, the coming of Babylon to lay siege, uh, the city of Jerusalem. And this is the worst day in Israel's history. As that historic invasion unfolds, here a thousand miles away from the city of Jerusalem, here in Babylon, Ezekiel is receiving a message. God is broadcasting that event live to Ezekiel uh, through this song given in verses 3 through 5 using the image of the pot. It is as though cooking a meat stew in a pot. And Jerusalem is the pot, and God's people, the inhabitants of the city, are the meat and the bone within the pot. But instead of getting a tasty meal or a fellowship offering by the priests that boiled meat tended to be in the Old Testament sacrificial system, and you read about that, for example, in places like 1 Samuel chapter 2, where Eli, the priest, wicked sons, showing contempt for the offering of the Lord and being put to death, or places like 2 Corinthians, uh, 2 Chronicles 30, chapter 35, at the Passover celebration under King Josiah, the reform at the temple, the meat being boiled to be offered as fellowship offering, 
uh, by, to be shared by the priest, instead of being holy offerings unto the Lord, both the meat and the pot will go up in flames to be melted and incinerated. And indeed, for years leading up to this date, the people of Israel themselves used this very parable and very image. Uh, we saw this back in chapter 11, verse 3 where the people used to say of themselves, the city is the pot, we are the meat in it. That was the parable frequently spoken in Jerusalem. They used to say, in an illusion of security, there is no judgment and exile coming. As the meat belongs to the pot, we belong to the city and we are safe in it. But now the day has come and God is turning their arrogance, their sense of false security, their own parable on its head, And God says to the people of Israel exiled in Babylon that the inhabitants of Jerusalem will become all burnt ashes. Jerusalem itself will become like molten copper under Babylonian siege. Both the pot and the meat will be burned up and melted by the Babylonians under judgment. And Jerusalem is pictured here to have blemishes and corrosion and uncleanness due to sin, due to the blood that's shed in idolatry. And that's aroused God's wrath that announces woe to the city of God, woe to the bloody city, we read uh, in uh, verse 9. And it follows uh, with a further description of what is happening. Uh, Verse 10 says, the Lord saying to the Babylonians, heap on a pile of logs under the pot. Keep feeding plenty of wood and turn up the flame. Let the meat and the bones be burned up. And verse 11, then pour out the bone broth out of the pot and set the pot empty upon the cold so that it may become hot, so that its corrosion, its uncleanness may be burnt up and melted in it. And verse 12, cast the corroded pot ultimately into the fire. This is a message of utter and ultimate destruction. Jerusalem will not be a city of refuge, but a place of destruction, a pot of destruction for the people. And God himself will supply the fire from his wrath that will burn, and the misery of judgment will be felt by all who are under siege. And that's the meaning of the parable Ezekiel is given on this very day. And the question is, What is the message of it? If the meaning of it is pretty straightforward and simple, and this is incidentally the very last message given in Ezekiel, what is the message to the church in the 6th century BC, and ultimately what's the message to us? Well, simply this parable for us teaches us about the reality of divine judgment against sin. And we see three characteristics of it all mentioned in verse 14. We see first that judgment is certain. The Lord says in a staccato fashion, I have spoken, it shall come to pass, I will do it. Judgment is certain, there's a fixed time. The Lord will do it, it shall happen. That day is coming, there's a certainty of judgment. Judgment, secondly, is is irrevocable. Again, verse 14, I will not go back, I will not spare, I will not relent. It cannot be revoked, it cannot be reversed, it cannot be canceled. It must happen. And judgment, thirdly, is unquestionably fair. It'll be according to your ways and your deeds. You will be judged, declares the Lord God. 
And the Bible declares the judgment to come for all mankind one day. There is yet another appointed day in history when this will come to fulfillment. The destruction of Jerusalem is just a small minor preview and that day that is coming, the image of this burning pot in this parable will be enlarged and escalated to the nth degree into that of the everlasting fire, the lake of fire, and the pit of everlasting destruction. And judgment, the Bible declares, will be certain, irrevocable, and unquestionably fair on the day it comes. And yet in an infinitely more awesome way, this parable is pointing us to the message of the Bible, that this is exactly what happened at the cross. The parable here is pointing us to what God himself has done in his son Jesus, where the judgment fire for the sins of people have fallen not upon us but upon his beloved son, that he who knew no sin became sin for us, and he had to endure in his body and soul the righteous wrath of God, the fire of divine judgment poured out according to our own ways and our own deeds, that there on Golgotha, wood was placed underneath, as it were, the eternal Son of God hung on that cursed tree and faced the flames of hell in our place. And he did that in order for there to be salvation for sinners. He did that in order for there to be deliverance for people from the wrath to come. He had to drink from the cup in our place. He had to satisfy the fury of divine wrath. And the Bible declares that he has done it. It is finished. And so the situation is reversed for all of you who are in Christ this morning. God has satisfied the fury of his divine wrath. He has cleansed you from all your sins. The blood of Christ, his son, shed for you, cleanses you from all your corrosions and impurities of sin. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Yet at the same time, for those who are outside of Christ, this parable remains still valid and very much forthcoming. Again, verse 13, we read that the Lord speaking this message, I would have cleansed you, but you are not cleansed from your uncleanness. The reason that judgment is coming is because they were unwilling. The gospel declares that there is a way for sinners. Our God is a God who holds out his hands all the day to sinners. But as we read in verse 13, because you are unwilling on account of your unclean lewdness, you shall not be cleansed anymore until I have satisfied my fury upon you. That's the serious, straightforward message of the gospel. Message which is reinforced in the last chapter of the Bible in Revelation chapter 22, where the angel says to the apostle John, let the filthy still be filthy. If you are not going to be cleansed by, from sin, let the filthy still be Filthy, if you remain in your sins, if you reject Christ, this parable is showing something of what awaits every uncleansed sinner on the day of judgment. But if you are in Christ, again, this parable is showing gloriously what Jesus has done for you. There is no wrath. 
the fire of judgment is gone. God comes to you now only as a refining fire. Not in judgment, but in salvation. God comes to deal with his children in love. He means to deal with the remaining corrosion and rust in the city of God, to burn off the dross, to carry out his saving purpose so that you may be holy vessels in his house, so that you may be pure offerings in his sight, not something to be burned up in flames in judgment. And that's the glorious truth of the Christian life, that in our union with Christ, in our enjoyment of salvation, in our life under the reign of grace, all that the Lord brings into our lives, the rod of discipline, perhaps pressures of fiery trials and afflictions, they are never a fire of judgment on your life for your sins. But these things are applied to us only for one purpose, and it is to burn off the dross. It is to sanctify, to purify us. It is because he loves us and delights in us that his purpose unchangeably is to magnify his own glory within us. And that's God's eternal purpose and pledge to all of God's children to reclaim and restore us to his image, to produce in an ever-increasing way Christ-likeness within us. And he who called us into fellowship with his Son is surely faithful. He will surely do it. So what a striking double-edged parable this is of the pot. Apart from cleansing from sin, all that awaits is the fire of judgment. But in Jesus Christ, we see this fire quenched once for all, and all we have is the glorious work of salvation, even bringing us to purity, glory, joy of fellowship. And the simple question is, on which side of this parable do you stand this morning? Then in verses 15 through 27, we have the second part of the chapter. We have a sign given in this strange and painful personal experience for the prophet Ezekiel. The Lord says Ezekiel himself will be a sign in the mystery of God's purposes. And the Lord came to Ezekiel, presumably on the very same day of this parable, uh, he came to Ezekiel with a devastating news. The Lord said to Ezekiel, I'm about to take the delight of your eyes away from you at a stroke. And that was in the morning, and his wife will die suddenly in the evening. Unexpectedly, quite suddenly, the blow of death into his marriage upon his personal life, a reminder to us that the Lord is sovereign over all the days of our life and over the timing, precise timing of our death, Ezekiel would have been around 35 years old at this point. Uh, This is a wife of his youth, barely in her 30s, who is the delight of his eyes. Uh, Incidentally, that description tells you what every marriage ought to be by God's design. It's delighting in the wife as one who brings out the shalom, wholeness, joy in your eyes. There is a closeness, delight, Fellowship that mark every true uh, spiritually minded marriage. And the Lord says, I am about to take that away from you. Now, what a reminder here, once again, that even in Jesus Christ, we do not know what tomorrow may bring. Death can be so sudden and unexpected, even for God's people, those united to the Lord Jesus. 
the Lord will take her away. But rather, all the more strangely and even heartlessly, one might say, Ezekiel is commanded not to mourn or weep or grieve outwardly. And none of these culturally accepted and quite natural signs of public grieving, Ezekiel is to practice, whether it be mourning, weeping, sighing aloud, rending his turbans, taking off his shoes, covering his lips, eating the bread of men, eating the funeral meal. None of these things he is to do because he was to be a prophetic sign. Ezekiel's life, in other words, was to be a sign taken up in God's purposes that will illustrate to the people of Israel how they are to respond to the news of Jerusalem's destruction and devastation. That Ezekiel personally, by means of his own life experience, is to proclaim to the people of Israel that they are not to grieve, lament, mourn the fall of Jerusalem. When God takes away the city that they have looked on outwardly as their joy and glory, as their soul's desire and yearning, their stronghold, the pride of their power, the delight of their eyes, they are not to mourn the fall of Jerusalem. And even though Ezekiel is told here by God in this particular situation a little bit of why, why the Lord is taking away his wife, why he is not to grieve, Ezekiel is not told everything by the Lord. Why God in his good pleasure and wisdom chose to take away his wife in an untimely death from a human vantage point. Why did God choose to do that for purposes that he could not fully grasp? Ezekiel was simply to live through what God sovereignly brings in trust and in obedience as the Lord's servant. Even when the task to which God calls him is exceedingly hard and difficult and painful and inscrutable, Ezekiel was to submit to God's bitter bitter providence with a sweet frame of mind that says with Job, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of God of the Lord. Now God's providences uh, can be so mystifying, so excruciating, so inscrutable. There are times when believers can hardly bear up under the weight of them. In those moments, you need to remember that God is sovereign. And that means he never owes us explanations. And you need to respect that. God is unquestionably and unchangeably good and wise and just in all his ways, even when you cannot see them. When you cannot understand, yet you need to trust and you need to bow before his sovereignty. And when you cannot understand, then the place where you find comfort and assurance is God himself. He is your stronghold. He is your refuge. He is your comfort. He is your resting place. You find that fortress of God opened wide for you to come into in all your bewilderment and befuddlement, particularly through the gates of what he has done for you at the cross. When saints go through bewildering experiences and painful providences, 
It is the cross that dispels all our doubts, all our provocations, all our temptations towards murmuring and grumbling. The cross addresses all your pains and sorrows because your God and Savior is not unacquainted with sorrow, grief, pain, and even death. When beguiling and perplexing, even tragic, evil things happen to you in life, and they do happen in this fallen world, your mind needs to be guarded by the truth of the gospel and not by the subjective interpretation of mystifying providences. Our saints need to stand firm in the assurance of Romans chapter 8 that in all these things, God is for you and that the grip of the love of God for you in Jesus Christ and over you has never been severed. And you are a sheep secure in the hands of your shepherd who laid down his life to redeem and to reclaim you and in his inscrutable ways and wisdom, he has brought this into your experience for his holy purposes that you may never discover fully on this, on this side of glory. Ezekiel's experience is something that at least half of us here this morning who are married will one day have to face. The death of your spouse, like Ezekiel, whatever the timing may be, whatever the circumstances may be, half of us who are married in this room will have to face the death of our spouse, and all of us here will have to face death, the last enemy. But even as we are reminded this morning in Sunday School from the Westminster Catechism, when we go through the dark valley of the shadow of death, we are reminded that God has removed the sting and curse of death for his people. The death of his saints are precious in his sight. It is out of his love in order to deliver us from sin and misery to bring us into his presence that God has ordered even the timing of our death. The enemy's last attempt is for the saints, but an entrance is into everlasting blessedness. As with Ezekiel, and as with Ezekiel's believing wife, and we are not told anything in the scriptures to assume the contrary, Ezekiel's wife was a believer. And as with the Apostle Paul, as with all the saints down through the centuries, the life of faith simply declares that Christ be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. Here Ezekiel is commanded something very mystifying from the Lord. And if you think that God's dealing here with Ezekiel is rather hard and heartless, then place once again we are brought to for understanding and comfort is that place where he most gloriously displayed the character of who he is as Savior. You look to what he has done in the giving up of his son. Jesus Christ, his beloved son, in whom his soul finds delight, his only begotten son who everlastingly dwelt in the bosom of the Father in fellowship of mutual love. It is he, the delight of his eyes, that God gave up even to the cursed death on the tree in order to bring you to blessing. Whenever you find providences 
difficult, you have misgivings, tempted to have misgivings about God, then the place you go to is the cross and to remember that God himself knows what it means to lose the delight of his eyes and willingly give him up to the cursed death on the tree in his love and grace towards his people. In order to save the church, he crushed the head of the church. In order to deliver you from death, he made the author of life and the author of salvation suffer in torments of hell. And there's no situation in life where God is not your refuge, your strength, when you are armed with that gospel truth. If you only you are more acquainted with the power of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now here we are reminded of the only source of comfort, whether in life or by death, is that you are forever united to this one who loves you and gave himself for you. So Ezekiel was to be a sign pointing to the coming grief of the people of Israel because, as the Lord says, the day will come, surely, verse 26, when a fugitive will come to you to report to you the news, there will be one escaping from Jerusalem's pot of destruction to come report to you the news. And on that day, verse 27, the Lord says, your mouth will be opened. That prophetic gag order the muteness that was imposed on Ezekiel back in chapter 3, verse 26, will be no more. When that report comes, your mouth will be opened, you shall speak, you shall no longer be mute, and you shall be a sign. They've now seen with their eyes the message of the first 23 chapters coming to fulfillment. So now, on that day, your mouth will open and you will begin to speak to the exiles something more glorious. And as a preview, the last half of Ezekiel indeed will bring that good news of hope and comfort and salvation to the exiled people of God. How judgment is not just upon God's people, but for all the nation, chapters 25 through 32. And then Ezekiel will go on to declare how God's new work of redemption will take place, gathering and saving his people, chapters 33 through 39 before chapters 40 through 48 conclude with that glorious vision of the new temple where the Lord will be everlastingly with his people. Ezekiel, the son of man, will be a sign, and a sign that points to something that will happen. He will open his mouth and he'll speak, and he will begin to speak this glorious news of hope and salvation. The first 20 chapter of the book of Ezekiel have been pretty uh, judgment heavy and yet here comes a day when that judgment has been fulfilled the Lord will cause his servant to open his uh, uh, mouth to declare the glorious news and he himself will be a sign pointing people to something else now in just a minute we'll see another sign that proclaims a message the table of broken bread and pour the wine in a cup. It'll point you to the substance, the answer to all the judgment, all the sorrows, all the strikes of covenant curses, and even death itself, the substance that is the Lord Jesus Christ, the ultimate message of the scriptures. And in the same way, Ezekiel will go on to declare that glorious news. And you know, that's always the pattern in the scriptures. Because as Ezekiel's mouth is opened, as a sign that begins to speak, 
It's only in light of the judgment that has come to be fulfilled. And that's always been the pattern. Remember Jesus himself, how he told his disciples on the Mount of Transfiguration. He told them to shut their mouth and says, tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. But it is now finished. His risen salvation is coming. Then he commissioned his disciples to go tell the good news. And what they have seen with their eyes, touched with their hands, and heard with their ears concerning the word of life, they are to open their mouths to declare. And that's always what happens when you come into contact with the substance and the fulfillment of the message. Just as the fugitive will come from Jerusalem and bring report to you the news, what God has done to Jerusalem in judgment and your mouth will be opened. So there will be a messenger sent one of God bringing the good news concerning what God has done in Jesus Christ in order to bring you to eternal life. And believers, you have that good news, the substance Christ preached to you in the gospel this morning. So the only response you have is to say with a psalmist in Psalm 40. And I simply want to read these words to you from Psalm 40 and cause to reflect and think what glorious truth you have been on the receiving end of. Listen to the psalmist in Psalm 40 who says, I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. And I have told a glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips, as you know, O Lord. I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and of your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love from the great congregation. And the question with which you close is, whose experience is that? Who is Psalm 40 speaking of? Having been delivered out of the pot, out of the pit of destruction, whose mouth has been opened, who has not hidden God's deliverance in the heart and spoken of God's salvation in the great congregation? And the answer is not one. We can just as apply these words to Ezekiel, the son of man. Supremely, we apply these words to the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, who has come to the congregation, the church, to declare salvation. But because you are in Christ, uh, this has become your experience. This is your song, believers. He has brought you out of the pit of destruction, out of judgment. He has brought you to salvation. He has opened your mouth to declare God's praise with a new song. And he has called you not to hide God's salvation and deliverance from your heart, but rather declare it with your open mouth. So here Ezekiel's life is given as a sign, sign that pointed to something, the judgment coming. Oh, how gloriously we come to that sign in the gospel to be reminded afresh of the substance, the Lord Jesus Christ. And because we have seen him, because we have heard the news of the substance Proclaim to us, let us indeed open our lips to declare his praise. Let us continually praise his name. Well, thanks be to God for this word, and let's pray together.